0: Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
1: Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today’s guest has a degree in international relations and political science. In his research for the Grey Man novels, including Agent in Place, Gunmetal Grey, Backblast, Dead Eye, Ballistic, On Target, and The Grey Man, he traveled to more than 15 countries and trained alongside military and law enforcement in the use of firearms, battlefield medicine, and close-range combative tactics. He is also the author of the New York Times bestsellers Tom Clancy Support and Defend, Tom Clancy Full Force and Effect, Tom Clancy Commander in Chief, and Tom Clancy True Faith and Allegiance. With Tom Clancy, he co authored Locked On, Threat Vector, and Command Authority. It's my pleasure to welcome Mark Graney. Mark, welcome to the show.
2: Alright, thank you so much for having me, Bianca.
1: Yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. So, just for our listeners, a bit of an overview of the book we're discussing today which is Sierra Six and it's the 11th book in the Gray Man series. Right. So, it's been years since Gray Man's first mission, but the trouble's just getting started. Before he was the Gray Man, Court gentry was Sierra Six, the junior member of a CIA action team. In their first mission, they took out a terror Leader at a terrible price. Years have passed. The gray man is on a simple mission when he sees a ghost. The long dead terrorist, but he's remarkably energetic for a dead man. A decade of time hasn't changed the gray man. He isn't one to leave a job unfinished or a blood debt unpaid. So, a huge amount to unpack here. With Mark today. So, Mark, could you tell us what came first? Was it an interest in writing espionage novels or was it the degree in international relations and political science?
2: Well, I was a big nonfiction reader as a kid. I mean, I read everything nonfiction, biographies. Civil War, World War II, things of that nature. And it wasn't until I was 19 years old and I had not declared my major for international relations. So I guess it predates when I picked up Tom Clancy's Patriot Games in, I guess, 87 and read that. And suddenly I was hooked on anything having to do with espionage novels or military fiction. And Clancy would only had a couple books out at that point, but I read those and then I picked up the older guys like Jean Le Carré and Frederick Forsyth and many others. And probably about After three or four years of reading, I thought about writing something and spent 15 years trying to write my first book and seven months writing my second. So that goes to show you once you put the effort into it, you can do it. I really probably declared my major in international relations because I was reading uh, novels like Tom Clancy's Patriot Games.
1: That's amazing and certainly pays off in the career you're doing now. So many people study something and it's never something they actually use on a day to day basis. So for you, definitely. Let's talk about those 15 years for that first book because our listeners always love hearing origin stories and we say all the time that published authors make it look so easy. Our listeners pick up this finished book like you did with Tom Clancy and you go, oh my word, this person is a master at their craft. It must have come naturally to them overnight and I will never live up to that. But what they don't see is those 15 years behind the scene, 10 years, 15 years as a writer masters their craft. So could you tell us about that?
2: Sure. Yeah, I had an idea for a novel when I was 22 years old, 21 years old, and just started messing with it a little bit here and there. I think the thing that made it take 15 years to do was I just didn't really believe that anything would come out of it, but it was fun, and I liked to do it, and I would pick at it. So I started it in 1990, I think, and finished it in 05. and I literally started it on a word processor and then moved to a computer with a big flash floppy disk and then I had it all saved on a smaller floppy disk and then on a thumb drive. And by the time I finished it in 05, I guess it was probably on a thumb drive. And literally all the technology developed in that time. And it wasn't until I finished this book that I had picked at for 15 years. And that doesn't mean I spent 15 years writing it. It means I probably spent six months writing it like all the books I write now. But I just did it over this period. I had it in my head that I wanted to be a writer, but I don't think I really believed that it could ever happen. I didn't know anybody that was a writer. I didn't know anybody that knew anybody that was a writer as far as I know. I didn't work at it like it was my job or my craft. I had another job and It wasn't until I finished that first book and I literally just put it to the side and then had an idea for something else. And I wrote my second book in seven months. There's one other thing that happened during that period, which was actually really, really helpful. And it might be helpful for some, depending on where you are in your process of writing and getting published, is probably about 10 years into that 15-year process, I kind of put my book to the side. It was to the side most of the time for 15 years. but And then I went and I wrote three novellas just back to back to back and short 80, 120 page stories with a beginning, a middle and an end. And I edited them and I did all this, never published them, never did anything with them whatsoever, but stepping away from the one work and working on something else, you know, I went back to the, my novel fresher and definitely a better writer because then I'd done all the steps because even though it's a novella, even though it's shorter than a novel, you have to do all the editing and you have to have the story arc and all these things. So I felt like in hindsight that taking that, whatever a year away to write these three novellas really helped me go forward with my novel. So like I said, it took 15 years to write the first novel and seven months to write the second novel because once I had that first novel done, I was like, well, how much did I actually work? And I was really, I was happy with it and I was proud of it, but I I didn't think it was publishable. The internet had been invented while I was writing the novel. (laughs) And so then I could go and, and read all these things about query letters and what agents are looking for and all this other stuff. And then I thought my book was probably too long and too bloated and too many characters and all that i've learned from every project it wasn't until my fourth book that i got published and then i had the three novellas as well but i mean every one of those was a step in the right direction
1: yeah for our listeners i always feel like it's time wasted you write a novel and yeah. it doesn't get published and it's time wasted but these are learning novels these are mfas for those of us who don't have the time or can't afford mfas is just learning from each one like you've said so fourth novel published and these three novellas that were were not published as well which is amazing so mark i recently interviewed ken follett for his novel never and he was talking about his research process etc etc and i was hugely impressed by that but yours makes his look like puppies play i mean when i look at this that you have the traveling to more than fifteen countries, training alongside military and law enforcement. Could you tell us about that? Was this all to become a better writer, to know the genre better, to write more realistically, or where did that all come from?
2: Yes, it was completely for the writing. I think it was probably two thousand four or two thousand five, about the time I finished the first book. I decided I needed to know a little bit more about firearms, so I went to a school. I live in West Tennessee. It's in middle Tennessee, a couple hours away, but it's a school where they train anybody, but there's a lot of special forces go there. A lot of law enforcement, SWAT go there. And a lot of, at the time, military contractors. So private military contractor people would go there and train. So I went with very little experience. I'd shot a pistol and I barely ever shot a rifle. And within a couple of days, I was like doing team tactics with military people and SWAT teams and stuff. And then I went back to the school and I probably have taken 50 courses, some of them a week long at that school over the time. But I learned really quickly that it's helpful in the type of books I write, it's helpful to understand the equipment and the tactics and whatnot. But it's really so much more helpful to sit in the bunkhouse or the team room and meet these people, men and women, to get to know them and hear how they talk and hear what they joke about and hear what they like and don't like. And that informed my writing an incredible amount. And so once I got published, once I started working with Tom Clancy, obviously that opens a lot of doors in the military. So I got on a destroyer. And I went to military bases and I went to the Pentagon and I went to some of the three-letter intelligence agencies and talked to people, all non-classified stuff, of course. And then even last September, I got to fly in the backseat of an F-18 fighter jet. After taking water survival course up in Maryland, I went down to New Orleans and flew in the back of an F-18. It all really helps the novels. The location research helps as well. You do as much as you can in the time that you have. I've written two books a year, every year since about 2000. 2010. So you know, I always feel like it's a race against time. And it's like, well, I've got 10 days I can go over to Moscow or to Beijing or something like that. I have to be writing 2000 words a day while I'm traveling and, and all that. I would do more if I had more time, but I keep agreeing to write the book. So that's, that's what's slows yeah. me
1: I love that kind of immersive approach in it. I remember years ago, I was reading a Patricia Cornwell, and she wrote quite a bit about Cape Town in South Africa, mm-hmm. And Cape Town was spelt with the T being lowercase and the C uppercase. And I was like, you've clearly never even been to Cape Town if you don't even know how to spell it. And that got me worked up. For a novel that I was previously working on that never got published was I was looking at a bodyguard to Nelson Mandela. And I did a ton of research on what it took to be a bodyguard and training and chatted to a whole bunch of people off the record who were... South Africans who became mercenaries, leaving the South African Defense Force and then being mercenaries across the world. And just chatting to them, I learned so much. But you went and you were with these people experiencing all of these things. So- Absolutely amazing way of bringing all of that to your work. So can we talk about writing a series? Because a lot of our listeners have got books and ideas that have got series potential. But of course, if that first book doesn't take off, you don't get to write the rest of them. So you need to do a really good job with that first book to create enough of a market for it. How do you plan for that, Mark? Do you sit like months in advance and plan out a whole bunch of books in the series going ahead? Or do you always finish at a place that the story can continue and then you worry about the next story afterwards?
2: Well, there's two things there. I have very strong opinions on if you haven't been published and you think you have a series on your hand. I really feel like don't worry about that. Put everything into that first book because trust me, your publisher will make you have a series if your first book is is good and successful. It's like you won't be able to make that a one-off book if you get published. So obviously an, an editor might say, well, where do you envision the?" story going from there, and you should probably be able to talk about it a little bit. But unfortunately, I've talked to dozens and dozens of people who are planning out this eight-story arc. And meanwhile, they're not writing their first book. They're sort of like plotting their master plan to take over it. And my experience was I wrote one book. I was just desperately trying to get published to where I could hold something in my hand that I wrote with my name on it and like some artwork. I thought that would be the coolest thing in the world. And it was. But my publisher said to me, do you have another one of these in you? Or where you see the story going from there. And I didn't have a plan. And so that leads me into the next part of your question. Right now, I'm working on book 12, which is to say, I have a big outline that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's missing this sort of through line that the story really needs to hold all these cool little parts together. And it's due theoretically in May, they let me get away till about July before they start, you know, knocking on my door for it. And Well, I've written some words, but I'll probably end up throwing them away. I want every story to kind of be fresh. I have an idea about doing a story here or an idea about this character and what's going to happen to them in the future, but as far as what is the book about, I have no idea until I start working on the book. For Sierra 6, which is my new one, I thought for a long time I wanted to do an origin story of the series, take you back to when my hero Court Gentry was younger and at some point in the origin, but the danger once it came time to do that was, well, I've talked a lot about its history. I just like books where they refer back to history, not even something that's in a previous book, but it just makes makes the characters fuller and richer. And I thought, well, the problem with an origin story is people kind of know how it ends. You know, they, they know the hero gets out of it and they know the hero ended up where he is. But I got the idea of writing a book about one event that happened when my hero was a young man when he's in his mid-20s and relating it to something in the present. It's basically two novels threaded together. And the thing that happened 12 years ago relates to the thing that's happening in the present. and it goes like that. But yeah, so I just had this general idea that I wanted to go back into, my Hero's Past. But it wasn't until last year when it was time to actually write the book that I really started thinking about it. So this year, I'm piddling with ideas for the book that I'm going to write this year. And this time next year, maybe I'll come back and talk to you and make it sound like I had it all figured out all along. But it, it, <laughs> it really is it really is book by book. But yeah. but again, i just reiterate that if you're a writer just starting out, put everything you have into that first book and make it as good as you possibly can. Don't worry about the series. They will grab you by the neck and pull pull. pull you into into writing a series if they love your first book
1: yeah absolutely and in those 10 books if you were constantly sort of alluding to his past when the time came to write this did you have to suddenly go back to those 10 books and go oh shit what did i say had happened in his past or was it like once you started writing the series did you have a very strong understanding of his backstory so that you could allude to it in an organic way without tripping yourself up on those details
2: I thought I had a really good understanding of his backstory, but as I would go back and look at little things here and there, I've learned a lot. It surprises people. Like, if you told me right now, tell me what the plot of Ballistic was, my third book, or the plot of my second Tom Clancy novel, or something like that, I would either not know, or we'd have to sit here for a minute as I kind of reworked it out. CR6 is my 21st published novel, and I finished my 22nd. It comes out in July. So, it really does get muddled. There's so many things have gone on. And there's things that I need to refer back to as I'm writing, going back to his origins. And I'm like, okay, did we talk about that in gunmetal gray or in on tar, you know, like, where was that? I have a big, long PDF file that has all of my books on it. So sometimes I'll search for key terms or something like that, and it'll go through the whole thing. But if you don't know what you're looking for specifically, it doesn't do you a lot of good. So it is really tough once you're 11 books into it. I know who his parents were. I know where he's from and this and that. But it's like in one book, he might have said something like, I've never done a job in Thailand or something like that. And in a later book, I kind of have to hopefully keep that consistent. People have pointed out before when I've gotten things wrong, for sure.
1: Oh, readers will. When they're fans of something, they almost know the book better than you do. So really. they will say, oh, you said he hasn't been here, but in this book he was there. So it's they really. will. So I like that you said you didn't want to do a sort of the origin story. On its own, because you already knew where he was now. So yeah. what were the challenges in terms of that? Like writing, cause you've got this dual timeline throughout the book. It's 12 years ago, present, 12 years mm-hmm. ago, present, mm-hmm. which is not something you've done in the other books. What kind of challenge did this give you in terms of a learning curve compared to just writing a story, one story in a linear way using one timeline?
2: Yeah, I had a conversation with my editor before I even started this book, as I told him what I wanted to do about the past. And he told me, he said you have to be careful because if there's just a small thing that happens in the present and a lot that happens in the past people are going to lose the present story arc and vice versa. If I go back to a thing in the past for just a few scenes or a few chapters here and there and you end up going like 100 pages because I write long books it's a 165,000 word book. If you're gone from that plot line for 120 pages or something you can't expect the reader to be able to pick it right back up. So he said you really kind of have to balance the story. And I only saw sort of knew what he meant. I was like, yeah, you're right. But once I started working on it, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I need to write two 80,000 word novels and have them thread together just perfectly. And I had a lot of stress trying to decide if one of the plot lines was more thrilling than the other. Is the ticking clock as important? Are the stakes as high? Is the story personal to the hero, which is a super important thing that I would want your listeners to always think about. I can tell by the reviews of my books, when I write a book that's like more uniquely personal to your main characters, people just love it. And when it's a little bit more geopolitical or a bigger picture or macro, people like it. (laughs) And I prefer when people love it. So I try and do the personal thing. So that was the big problem for me was having two complete stories, threading them together in the right place for relevance, and also making each story just as good as the other. Because I, I really stressed on that a lot and the reviews for it had been terrific, but I spent most of last spring, summer and into fall going like, are people going to really be into the past action and then the present stuff's going to be boring or vice versa? And fortunately it worked out, but it really wasn't until I was done with the book that I felt like I'd done it right.
1: Yeah. So something new you've mastered this far along in your career, which shows there's always something that we can be learning and improving on as writers and pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zones. I have two more questions. One- One is, how do you manage a list of so many characters? Because we generally tell our listeners that readers can only deal with so many characters before their heads kind of explode. I know your novels are much longer, which allows for more of this. But even at Mm. the beginning of your novel, you have like a list of the characters, who everybody is to orientate them. So what's your advice to people who are managing sort of an unwieldy list?
2: I started doing that when I was working with Clancy because he's done that for a long time. The first long books I wrote were with Tom, and I went from writing The Gray Man, my first novel, my agent, I was trying to get published. I was trying to get an agent to represent me. And I literally wrote the book just for him because I've given him some other stuff. And he's like, you're a really good writer, which is exactly what you want an agent to say. But he's like, but I don't think the book is very marketable. You need to write a whole nother book. And so then I was literally like, tell me exactly what you want and I will do it. And so I, I literally wrote The Gray Man for one person. And he told me, it's your first book. Make it 100,000 words. Don't go over 100,000 words. So Gray Man, I think it ended up being like 101,000 after all the edits or whatever, but I got away with that. They progressively got a little bit longer, and then I started working with Tom Clancy, and then they got quite a bit longer. I co-authored a novel a few years ago, and I'm working on a sequel called Red Metal, and it's 217,000 words. So you have a lot of characters, a lot of Russians, a lot of French, a lot of Americans, a lot of Polish. And so the character list definitely helps. I create the character list as I'm writing the book to help me. I'm 30,000 words into the book and I'm like, wait, what was the computer hacker's name from page 19? So I go back to that and I tweak it. I change people's job titles or whatever as the story dictates. But for this type of a novel, I think it's important. I think if you're writing a book like Gone Girl or something like that, where it's a family or something and a smaller cast, you probably wouldn't need to do it. But All my books sort of end up needing it. And again, I write it for myself originally. And then I guess it's up to the editor whether whether he keeps it in or or wants it out. But it does help me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. And last question. I know we're running out of time. You write lovely, short, self-contained chapters. Do you have like a formula you have in terms of what you need the scene arc to do in terms of your short chapter? How do you manage that?
2: It's a little bit more arbitrary than that. You said earlier, it's like you always can learn, and I'm always learning. I have a book coming out this summer that has some chapters that are probably two pages. But usually, my rule of thumb is around 10 pages, and I feel like sometimes the scenes are very, very short, and you're bouncing around, and I'll put a few scenes in a chapter. But every chapter sort of has to end with a little bit of an aha moment or something to kind of propel readers. I think the most important thing a writer can do is see their work through not their own eyes but through the eyes of a reader and that as you i'm sure you know is really tough it's something some people can't do at all and even those of us that can do it have to really work at it because you look at the page and you know what you think is there <laughs> you know what's in your head that you thought you wrote down but sometimes it's a little bit different so i feel like it helps me a lot to just go back and see it as the reader would see it when it comes to the end of chapters, they want something kind of propulsive there that informs them, doesn't turn out the way they thought the chapter was going to turn out, sets you up for the other chapter or something like that. So I like to make them about 10 pages, but it could be 16 pages if I don't have some sort of little resolution or kick to the next chapter in there, or it could end up being six or seven pages. But I don't think there's a right or a wrong way. I mean, you read some authors. Don Winslow has a chapter in his book, Savages. And you just turn the page. Chapter 19, shit. And you turn the page, chapter 20, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if I'd get away with that, but Don Winslow sure could. I mean, you know, it was a great book. So you do everything you can for dramatic effect. When I'm helping other writers, I will look at their work and I'm like, it just looks better for you to put this on a line by itself. It's just more impactful that way. If I teach a workshop or something like that. And it's literally almost like a physical rearranging of the stuff they have. It's like, this is all really good. But if you put that on its own line, that just adds punch to it. And it's the same way with chapters.
1: Yeah. And readers is appreciated. The book like The Witcher, I think you get to halfway through the book and it says chapter four and you're like, holy shit, man. (laughs) It's like these chapters are long. So Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. We really, really appreciate all the wonderful insights and wish you much success with Sierra Six.
2: Thanks for having me on, Bianca. I enjoyed it.
0: The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app we have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started for a very limited time. The shit known tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off that we want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. Are you looking
1: for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register go to biancamore.com, look for the beta reader matchup page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. There are just a few things I'd like to quickly mention. One, we have a new logo, which you might have noticed as you scrolled to find your favorite podcast's latest episode today. Or, you know, your third or fourth or fifth favorite podcast. We're not greedy that way. While we loved our toilet paper logo, it's something that I chose A year and a half ago, quite playfully, when I thought I was starting a podcast that only two or three of my friends would be listening to under duress. So we thought we would class it up a bit so that once we start with merchandising, you don't have to have a toilet roll on your t-shirt and caps. Thank you, Brendan Fisher, for designing us an awesome logo, which if you look at it carefully, you'll see our books stacked on top of each other. If you haven't seen the logo, head to our social media and you will see it there. Then, thank you to all who attended our first ever virtual retreat. It was a huge success and we really appreciate all of your amazing support. And of course, we hope to do another one in the future. So look out for those details. Then, if you'd like to submit to our Books with hook segment, please go to my website, biancamaray.com. Look for the podcast page. The submission link is there please just read the instructions carefully before submitting so that you make sure you include the right format and all the information that we need. And then finally, we're very excited to be announcing a giveaway that we're doing along with Craft Better Books who are giving away the prize of a world building audit. Now, what is a world building audit? It includes a 30-minute pre-project consultation, a review of all of your current world-building material, a world-building audit letter offering praise, feedback, points of growth, a two-hour consultation call to answer any questions you may have and do some joint constructive work on your growth points. This prize has a value of $375. Now, the giveaway rules are, you need to fill out the entry form with your name, email, and genre, one entry is allowed per person, the winner will be drawn on Monday the 28th of February and Craft Better Books will contact the winner by the email given. Now here's the link for you to go and enter that, it's www.craftbetterbooks.com forward slash giveaway. And there is a dash uh, or hyphen in between each of those words, world building giveaway. We'll also post the link on our socials and on the website. And if you're writing in speculative fiction or perhaps doing historical fiction or anything that requires a bit of world building, this is an absolutely amazing, amazing prize. So make sure that you enter for that. We apologize for the recording quality of the next interview. The sound quality isn't great, but still Josie had a lot of amazing insights to share, which is why we did our best to fix it, and we're hoping that you can still enjoy the interview. Today's guest is an unabashed romantic who met her husband when she stepped on his foot on his 21st birthday. She lives with him, their two sons, and their cats in England, she is the number one New York Times bestselling author of One Day in December and The Two Lives of Lydia Bird. It's my pleasure to welcome Josie Silver. Josie, welcome to the show. Ah, thank
3: you, Bianca. Thank you for asking me to come on.
1: It's really nice to be here. Yeah, wonderful to be chatting with you. One Day in December had such huge success, like straight out the gate. I remember being on Instagram at that time. And it was just everywhere. Every bookstagrammer was posting pictures of it, was talking about it. So could you take us through a bit of your journey to publication? When you started writing that novel, how difficult it was or how easy it was to find an agent and then getting the actual book sold? Okay. Well, that
3: book was my first Josie Silver book, but it wasn't actually my first book. It was my 13th book. So it might seem like a bit of a overnight success, but actually it was one of those where it kind of snowballs and snowballs. So I started writing probably about more than a decade ago. Entered into a Mills and Bean writing competition and I didn't win. I placed second, but that gave me the opportunity to work with an editor and kind of spend some time working on that manuscript, which eventually didn't get published because they kind of said we really like your writing style, but you like to include too many secondary characters and you swear too much <laughs> so <laughs> that's my problem
1: too so Josie yeah. you and I are on the same page here. carry on <laughs> and I really didn't want to lose all of
3: that so we kind of It was too tight a parameter for me, really, but, I mean, hats off to everyone that can do it because it is incredibly difficult. So I kind of took a step back and thought, well, if I can't do that, what am I going to write? And I wrote a novel that I just wanted to write. And there used to be a HarperCollins forum called Autonomy where you could upload it, you could kind of get criticism from peers, that kind of stuff. And I just put the first couple of chapters on there, went to bed, got up, and there was an email from HarperCollins to say, can we have the rest? And that was like magic totally unexpected and that kind of went from there and eventually I mean I, I've met the guy who used to run with anime I've met him since and he said to me do you know what it was that made me click on your manuscript to have a look and I said well obviously not and he said you'd called it The Lighthouse and I like lighthouses and it was as simple and as random as that and it, it's one of those bits of look isn't it you know there's lots lots of hard work but there's little bits of luck involved along the way and that was one of them for me so that ended up being published by HarperCollins and I stayed there for for several books you know I was there for probably seven books with seven different editors I self-published as well so I did kind of you know a bit of hybrid doing a bit of both and then one of the editors that I'd worked with at HarperCollins got in touch with me she'd since moved to Penguin and said would you fancy writing a Christmas book for us and I was just at, at the right point in my career to move on to something different so I said yes and that was kind of how One Day in December came to be born you yeah, know that book turned into One Day in December And no one really expected it to snowball in the way that it did. Um, It was due for publication a year earlier, actually, in the UK. And then my American editor read it and said, we would love to have it, but we can't have it yet. We need to wait a year. So it was all kind of done and put on ice for a whole 12 months. During which time the rights team kind of sold it all around the world, so it became a much bigger thing than initially it would have been if it had just come out when it was when it was supposed to. And then that and kind of snowball from there, really, that was so brilliant and exciting. That whole time with it being chosen for the Reese Witherspoon Book Club and then going into New York Times number one at Christmas, it was just absolutely magical from start to finish. The whole one day in December experience, and I think more so because it was unexpected.
1: Um, yeah, a person looks at that and sees this as debut author overnight success but like you say first time writing under this name and 13 books before that so no such thing (laughs) as overnight success no
3: no no, absolutely not but you know I feel terribly grateful for what happened I've been working for more than a decade as a writer and it just kind of all came together with one day in December it felt as if all the stars
1: aligned at the same time and everything went right which is lovely yeah and to think about the luck as well I teach creative writing and I tell my students all the time that luck is a huge factor. I remember with my first novel as well, my agent at that time picked mine because, you know, the title appealed to her and she saw, oh, it was a story based in South Africa and she'd just been chatting to her South African friend. And again, without that, how many novels have just been lost because... They didn't have the luck of somebody picking them at the right time, and I love that it was your title that made him.
3: Yeah! <laughs> when
1: it was published, it wasn't called The
3: Lighthouse, and it was all completely changed, but it was just that tiny little detail that made the difference then. But I think if you just keep plugging away, keep working at it, those bits of look come your way as well, don't they? You know, it's the hard work behind it that brings the look to
1: your door. Yeah, totally. It's yeah. the two entwined. I don't think you can have one success without one or the other. And those two definitely go together. So then did you get an agent after the fact? Because it sounds like you skipped the whole agent finding process.
3: I didn't have an agent until I was about two books in So I was already published by HarperCollins when I got my first agent And even then it was difficult I had, now I've got my book of, I think there's 22 rejections You know, even though I was already published by HarperCollins It's just horses for courses I think with agents, isn't it? You have to just keep taking the nose on the chin, taking the nose Because you're going to find the one person that says yes And then that one person makes all the difference You've got to be quite thick-skinned, haven't you? just keep going even though it's difficult just
2: picking
1: yourself up and brushing yourself off and carrying on yeah well that's a byline on the podcast it just takes one yes and you approve <sighs> of that and to think that you already published and you were still struggling to find an agent for our listeners out there we feel your pain we really do because it really <laughs> is so difficult let's talk about one night on the island a delightful rom-com really really so delightful i remember sort of in 2000, I discovered Marion Keys when I was very, very sick in a London dormitory while traveling with a friend. And I somehow got some kind of hectic flu that made me be stuck in this dorm for three days. And I took myself to Boots and I got myself some orange juice and some vitamins. And I found the first thing on the shelf, which was a Marion Keys book. And of course, I fell head over heels in love with Marion Keys after that. And so many other writers have done the same things in the same genre but this is so singular and it just gave me all those happy feelings that the marion keys gave me all of those years ago and i think one of the reasons for that is just the organic delightful humor because so many people force humor they go over the top with humor they're not quite sure how to find this balance and you did it so utterly perfectly there's a line of exposition or narrative and then boom, this hilarious one-liner that just made me chuckle out loud. So for our listeners who are trying to either write in rom-coms or in the humor sphere, what is your advice to writers when it comes to writing humor? Are you just a naturally funny person that cracks everyone up at dinner parties? Remember when we used to do dinner parties or did it take some work?
3: I would love to say That I'm a naturally Funny person But actually I don't think I am I'm more of a people watcher And a wallflower actually Like most writers I think I spend a lot of time On my own And I'm perfectly happy Doing that But with regards to Incorporating humour Into stories I tend to write first person And I think that Naturally helps Because you kind of Get to see the private thoughts That go on Inside people's heads Everyone We're all a little bit more snarky inside our head and we say things that we wouldn't say out loud but go on inside our head. And we get to see that on the page and that automatically creates a connection, I think, between the reader and the character because you think, well, I would think the same thing but I wouldn't say it either. You can see that, natural humour that goes on inside everyone's head that's kind of secretive but for her to get the balance right I think I usually give my characters quite a lot of emotional baggage and you know they've got quite a lot going on so you know really lay the meat on the bones in terms of the character and the, the things that are happening behind the scenes in their life so for One Night on the Island Cleo she's a dating journalist and she's reached this point where she's quite jaded and she's just reaching her 30th birthday and she isn't making a big deal of it but her dad died when he was 29 and she's got this real mental block about turning 30 and being older than her dad ever made it to and that's really deep-seated for her and that's the reason why she's got this real issue around turning 30 so her editor sends her away to this really remote far-flung island off the coast of ireland to what they call as "marry herself which is basically to be her own best friend to discover who she really is to she spent this time as a dating columnist, where she's kind of been flinging herself into life as a single woman trying to find her, her other half. She's done it because it's her job, and she's kept going and kept going and kept going, and she's got to this point where she feels like half a person. So she goes to the island, and the, the whole point is really to discover who she is and what she really wants from her life. So there's a lot going on in Cleo's life, and the same for the for the male. The male lead in the book, he's got lots going on in another way. He's recently separated from his wife and he's living apart from his children. So there's lots and lots of big stuff going on in their lives. And I think if you've got all that deep stuff going on, you really do need to disperse it with little spots of humour in order to not make it a heavy read. So I think that comes a lot from dialogue. If you can get sparky dialogue between the two characters, then that is going to really add in a natural humour. For these two characters I've got in mind, you know, the movie parent Trap. You know, the original one, the parents in that. I just love the dynamic between them. They're so charismatic and so funny and they kind of hate each other and love each other. So I've got that relationship in the back of my mind for this and i find that helps is to have something like a particular relationship in mind to try and think well how would that work and what would happen next if these guys were in this situation so i use i use that to try and create like a dark. The darkness and light to balance it, really. And you can look for plot mechanisms to create the humour, I think, within a story as well. In One Night on the Island, there's there are two people stranded in one lodge that's tiny. And they have to show it. They've got no choice. So they end up drawing this chalk line down the middle of the lodge and that chalk line works really hard in the story as a mechanism to kind of create humour so you've got sort of neighbourly disputes between them and they can invite each other across the linings of their half or they can rub it out all together it's up to them but that chalk line works really hard as a plot mechanism to create humour within the story and secondary characters too you know they're a brilliant way to kind of bring in some humour that isn't necessarily you know if, you, if your main characters have got quite a lot of heavy stuff going on your secondary characters can bring the light and the funniness, and they can be a little bit more exaggerated and a little bit less realistic you right. know in the book Cleo joins a knitting circle which is a cross-section of all, all the different women across the island of different ages and different kinds of interests and, and they kind of really do bring a lot of the humour to the story and the island itself actually brings quite a lot of humour because it's hostile and it's cold and it creates lots of situations where they're drenched and they're uncomfortable and so you can bring in all of those other elements to create the humor and allow their more emotional stuff to be separate
1: from the humor. yeah i mean you think of shows like will and grace it's amazing how those secondary characters jack and karen quickly became favorites beyond will and grace Grace. because they were so hilarious so it's the same in novels you can have huge amounts of fun with them but you've got to kind of beat them back so that they don't think they're the main characters and take over the whole story which can sometimes happen there And also, you were obviously inspired by real life. So tell us about the Emma Watson lines as well that I absolutely loved as well. I think it's in chapter two that it begins with, let me just find the line. I'm about to die and it's Emma Watson's fault, (laughs) which I absolutely loved. Do
3: you know, that was actually the opening line of the book. That was the beginning of the book originally before we put the first chapter, the 9th century it. And it was, it was a Vogue interview that she did where she was kind of speaking about being happy as a single person and being whole as a single person. And she used the phrase self-partnered, I think she actually said. And that resonated with me as just such a fresh and, you know, a better way to look at being single, really. And that was a, a bouncing off point for the book. So Emma does make quite a few appearances throughout the book. you she'll know, keep referring back to her and Cleo apologises to her at one point to say, I'm really sorry, Emma, I'm letting you down there because because I'm just doing all of the wrong things I'm not happy being single I really want to fall into bed with
1: this man I could definitely sense that that was your opening line I knew that your first chapter came after that because it was just such a freaking perfect opening line but having said that your first chapter hit like all the things that a first chapter needs to do. Because we're saying on the podcast, you need inner conflict, you need external conflict. You can't just have a character who's got inner conflict. You need outer conflict. You can't have a character alone. They need to be interacting with someone in a way that reveals who they are as a person, that reveals their life situation, that answers the question, why now, why today? Why is the story starting now as opposed to last month or next month? And you need to see what the stakes are and you need to keep the reader intrigued so that they're turning pages. And you manage to do all of that in quite a short first chapter. So could you tell us a bit about that? Like, is it something you give a lot of thought to as you sit down and like, go, what are the stakes? What is the inciting incident, etc.? Or do you, after 13 books, kind of now approach it more intuitively? I
3: mean, I'd love to say that I'm a big platter, but it would be a big lie, um, <laughs> I'm more of a,
1: you know, cancer, which
3: is which is exciting in one way, but also it's a little bit kind of, it's terrifying, isn't it? Because you're never quite sure what's going to come out of your fingers. Sometimes it's magic and sometimes it's absolutely terrible and you have to kind of, you know, sort out what's going to go on the page. But with, with this first chapter, as I said, it did go in later in the book because I always like to start right in the middle of the action. So I'll jump straight in and perhaps start with dialogue, you know, throw the reader in, in the middle of a conversation so they have to kind of think, Oh, OK, what's going on here? And really kind of jump in think first and get into the story. Which is why I originally started off with that one, because she's on the boat, she's on the way to the island, and it's really kind of in the middle of the action. But then when we sat back and looked at it, I thought, actually, that's too much action. We do need a little bit of scene setting. Before, so yeah, so we, I use that first chapter to really kind of set the parameters of what she does and to create it sets out her a conflict in terms of you, you you find out that she's turning 30, you find out that she's feeling very left behind her school cohort of all the people who married, children, all of those things. And you find out through conversation also that her father, died, think she's when she's a baby, she's got no no reflection of him, and that she's pretty jaded on this mo-go and bad dates. Yeah, so she has got Oh, look at a conflict that comes out, you know, on the first couple of pages and so that we know exactly what's going on with her. And then her own to conflict. Her boss is very dynamic and is insistent that she's doing this, she's going on this mission to self-couple. And we know that her family are trying to arrange a surprise part of her which she doesn't want. So we can see what's going on around her that's causing her distress. And also what's going on inside to kind of make her think, okay, I do need to do something. And those two things kind of come together to make her make her decision that She's going to accept the offer that her boss. Not that she's got very much choice, actually, but (laughs) she does accept it because she understands that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I think layering it in early to create the tension and getting down very quickly on the page what the problem is so that the reader can jump straight in and be on board. And I think being in first person helps that because she can see all of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes in their head. Um, And it all kind of comes together to create this quick, short sketch of the overarching theme for the whole book
1: And while we're talking about first person, so this is just the last question we'll tackle. Is, so you've written two first-person narratives. Now, yeah. dual POV novels are notoriously difficult because readers tend to like one POV over the other. And writing two first-person narratives is especially difficult because the voices of each character needs to be particular to that character. They can't sound the same. Even though you kind of put dates and character stamps at the beginning of each chapter, it should be done well enough that if the reader doesn't even read that they know whose perspective they're in so could you talk to us a bit about that kind of challenge and how you overcame that
3: I do tend to try and find somebody who I can pin my character on in the real world or on TV or something like that so for these guys they're nothing like this couple but I don't know if you watch True Blood but you've got Eric Northman and Sookie Stackhouse so I kind of have Eric Northman in my head which is a joy <laughs>
2: always wonderful <laughs>
3: Okay, and have them because they're very distinct characters, aren't they? In whatever situation my characters are in, I'll think, well, what would he do in this situation? And what would she say in this situation? It helps me to just keep them completely separate and that they're so different and the physicality of them is so different, the way that they move, the way they stand. You can kind of get all that subtly down on the page and that helps, I think, if you can keep them very separate in your head by assigning them an actual personality. It's, for me, a little trick that helps me to keep them completely separate on the page as well. And first person's great. Because obviously you're inside their head, so you can see the same situation, but that they react differently and they think different things from observing the same thing. And with one on the island in particular, Max American from Boston, and Cleo is British. And I mean, I've got an, an American editor who was brilliant because she kind of went through it with a fine tuft of comb for me. So, what I've tried to do was keep the mucks um, and sections in American English and clear sections are in British English, so they're just very slightly different in terms of how they're written and how they're presented. And I think keeping that, everything through the spelling and different spelling of words and stuff in Max is in American English, which hopefully is just subtle enough for the reader to just see the difference on the page as well as kind of in the story, but to see it physically, you know, in the
1: spellings and in the syntax. I didn't notice that, and I normally do notice things like that, which is great because sometimes you notice something and it takes you out of the story. You did it subtly, but I knew that there was something... And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And now you've revealed that. So that's absolutely amazing. Josie, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, we will post a link to One Night on the Island on our bookshop.org page, on our affiliate page. Remember, if you buy through there, you support the podcast, you support an independent bookstore, and you support awesome authors like Josie Silver. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
0: Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
1: Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup
0: Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
4: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or, The interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8pm via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.